Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Robin Walsler is a clinical psychologist and director of TL Consultation Services and co-director of the Bay Area Trauma Recovery Center and staff at the National Center for PTSD Dissemination and Training Division. As a licensed psychologist, she maintains an international training, consulting, and therapy practice. She is an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and has authored or co-authored four books on ACT, including the recently released The Heart of ACT, Developing a Flexible, Process-Based, and Client-Centered Practice Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, as well as The Moral Injury Workbook, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Skills for Moving Beyond Shame, Anger, and Trauma to Reclaim Your Values. She also has expertise in traumatic stress and substance abuse and has authored a number of articles, chapters, and books on these topics. Dr. Walsler has been described as a passionate, creative, and bold act trainer and therapist, and she is best known for her dynamic, warm, and challenging workshops. She is often referred to as a clinician's clinician. Dr. Walsler, welcome to uh, Thoughts on Record. It's so nice to have you here uh, with us today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, Pete. Happy to be here. Well, today I think we're going to have a pretty wide-ranging chat around acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Robin, you're one of the leaders in the implementation of ACT across a variety of different clinical presentations. You've written a couple of really interesting books that we're going to discuss today. I thought we could maybe level set for the audience a little bit by just talking a little bit about the ACT model, where it's come from, how long it's been been around for, and some of the current clinical uh, indications. Would that be okay to start with? Sure. Happy to uh, just share a little bit of information. Uh, the The intervention was developed by Dr. Stephen Hayes, and some of the first publications uh, about the intervention came out in the late 80s, so it's been around for uh, quite a while. It was originally called comprehensive distancing, so if you were going to see those papers, you'd look up comprehensive distancing, and that wasn't a very good title for the intervention, and so... I believe it was maybe the early 90s that they shifted to acceptance and commitment therapy. And um, they were doing a lot of basic science around languaging and other kinds of things that were relevant to the development of the intervention, uh, but ultimately landed on six core processes that are designed to tackle psychological inflexibility or rigidity in responding Those six core processes are diffusion, which is uh, seeing the ongoing process of thinking. It's got a mindfulness uh, quality to it where you're observing thinking rather than uh, being caught up in thinking. Uh, Acceptance or willingness, which is openness to internal experience, your emotions and sensations, thoughts as well. Uh, Present moment, being here now, uh, showing up to what's your experiences in the moment. Self is context or perspective taking, which is about recognizing the larger sense of you. It's consciousness itself that we're aware that we're aware, that we're aware that we have emotion, thoughts and sensations and we can see or take perspective on those. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a more complicated topic. Take me a long time to uh, fully flesh it out, but I'll, I'll say that. And then uh, values, which are uh, what are individuals' personal values? What meaning do they want to make in their lives? And then committed actions. What sort of behaviors would individuals take from an open, unaware, in-the-moment place as they step forward uh, in their life, living their values? So that's sort of the broad idea. And then the ultimate notion behind it is that we would help individuals become more psychologically flexible. That's a really nice overview. And you're absolutely right. Any one of these topics, we could probably spend an entire podcast on and multiple podcasts on drilling down. They're so rich in deep. If I do a brief survey of those folks in my professional circle, it really feels that ACT is at the top of the list for, uh, for many of them. Why do you feel that ACT is so popular at this particular time? Probably a couple of things. Um, one is that there's a sensibility to it that you can experience. So, for instance, um, when I have a thought that's maybe critical of myself and I can see it for what it is, a thought, and recognize that it's not actually something inherently wrong with me, 
that makes sense, right? Like, oh, it's a thought. It's not a glitch or a, a broken thing within me. And so I think in some ways that makes sense and people can connect to that experience. Um, also, we've seen a rise in mindfulness. If you sort of look across time, if you go back 15, 20 years, mindfulness was sort of popular in the chronic pain and health fields with John Kabat-Zinn uh, promoting it in that area. And you had some um, folks practicing like Buddhist psychology and that kind of thing. If you go and look at um, number of publications, let's say, or some few, but now you look and it's just exploded, right? There's even a journal called Mindfulness now. And so I think that rise in being uh, conscious and aware uh, is also part of what you find in ACT. And so they've sort of uh, emerged uh, together. Mm -hmm. And that also uh, people know uh, can help with all kinds of uh, maladies of the human condition. And so uh, I think probably those are two of the things that have happened. People get connected to it experientially too. Like if they attend a workshop on and get training in it, like it, they have a feel of personal connection to it. So I think those are some of the things that account for its rise. I think one of the reasons that ACT really resonates with me is that it, the approach really seems to map onto the, some of the inevitabilities of the human condition. We have emotions that are designed to let us know what's going on in our environment. And I like the fact that ACT doesn't act to push them away, that it makes room for them. It promotes being willing to experience those emotions, to download the information, and to move forward in a values-driven way. Yeah, I think I think that's correct. And what you're speaking to, you know, is that sense of, oh, there is movement, motion, like experiencing is fluid, not static. And when we can observe it, it feels true because that's what's happening, right? Like we're beings in motion. And like if we could take a moment and think about how much motion is going on inside of our bodies right now at all levels, like it's hard to comprehend, like down to the level like mitochondria moving around inside of cells to blood throwing through your body to emotions rising and fallings and, and, and thoughts coming and going. Like it's a vast amount of movement. As soon as we catch that, there's some freedom in it, right? Like you don't have to get stuck in this emotion is going to last forever. Or this thought has significant meaning because it's on the move. It's changing and fluid. What are some of the clinical presentations that we know are particularly amenable to treatment with, uh, with ACT? Well, it's a transdiagnostic intervention. And so uh, we know that it should essentially map on to most kinds of human problems that people are struggling with. And indeed, if you look at the research, like we've covered everything from what would typically be called the DSM diagnoses, like everything from anxiety to um depressions or the two biggies it's also been used in the um, health field or looking at things like chronic pain or chronic disease and helping people in that territory as well all the way out to social issues like stigma and workplace environment issues so the really nice part about um, act that i appreciate so much is it's the theoretical and philosophical background allow us to approach human problems more generally instead of like thinking about needing to tackle a thought or an emotion or something like that. So it's got a widespread and a good amount of research covering multiple areas of human suffering. Yeah, I likewise appreciate that about ACT, especially as a, a clinician in private practice where I'm sending, seeing many folks come in the door who don't necessarily have what we'd call a diagnosis, but they have a problem going on in their life or there's some, some sort of condition that is less than favorable and they are finding that they are struggling against some of the inevitabilities that are built into that situation. ACT provides such a compassionate and forgiving framework to help people to re-relate to some of the inevitabilities that all of us are going to experience at various times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, and I'm appreciating that you're bringing up compassion because I think it's built right inside of the model. Like if you think about what we mean by compassion, it's that presence to pain uh, and staying committed to remain in the presence of that uh, while reducing suffering. And maybe we can chat a little bit about what is meant by suffering. 
because uh, we're not targeting reducing the pain per se, but the suffering around the pain. And if you look at the six core processes, it's present moment, larger than your pain, committed to opening up to it, diffused from the thought, I'm going to be here. Like you can just feel the model sort of has that compassion process built right in. And so the model itself is compassionate. I would, in fact, like to pick up on the point that you raised about the difference between pain and suffering, because I, I think that's a really critical uh, concept for clients to have in mind when when we're talking about these kind of interventions. There's, of course, that saying that people are familiar with that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And one of the sales pitches that we tend to give around avoidance, or certainly one that I do, is that, listen, there's going to be a certain amount of pain that's coming in the mail regardless you get to decide what you layer on top of that. So it seems to be the trick to leading a meaningful life is to experience the pain as it's going to be and not added any additional sort of self-inflicted wounds to the equation. How do you speak to clients around that critical differentiation between pain and suffering? Well, when I'm talking to clients, I talk about it as your natural emotional responses. Like, you know, our emotions are elicited by what's happening around us and uh, what our environment and context is uh, uh, bringing and that there's natural responses in that context. The issue is, is that then we don't want it. We begin to fight with our own experience. We want it to stop. We want it to go away. We want it to be different. We actually even evaluate ourselves as if we're, there's something wrong with us because we're having those experiences. So you have this sort of natural experience of pain and then the fight not to have it. And that fight is the suffering. Where, and, the, and the pain distinction is that just sort of natural response that learned behaviors, right? It's a natural response uh, given the context and environment. Why do you think that it is that we are so predisposed to struggle against pain that is inevitable? Is it something about the way the human psyche is set up? Is there a cultural overlay to it? What do you think is going on there? Well, there's probably some parts of it that are linked to, you know, human development and evolution where you want to stay safe and stay away from danger. And then, you know, uh, we expanded it through human languaging or human knowledge and started uh, looking at things as dangerous that aren't actually dangerous. Like pain is not dangerous, but we can evaluate it that way. And then we have a whole social system that's grown up out of this over, you know, very long periods of time that say that good mental health, and I think it's born from the uh, the DSM and the ideas about what good mental health is, is that uh, the way that you get to good mental health is through removal of symptoms and things that are what we evaluate as negative, uh, that, you know, remove the negative thoughts, remove the negative sensations, and then you'll be in a good uh, mental state. So, and it's an idea that follows the medical model, right? Like, you get an infection and you've got to give it a pill and cure the infection. And you get a, a diagnosis, you've got to apply a treatment and cure the diagnosis. And that whole process of social uh, messaging and following the medical model has created a space where we're relating to our own internal experiences if it's problematic. Like we've made emotional pain a problem. And problems are meant to be solved. And I want to like sort of step back and say, what if emotional pain isn't a problem to be solved? Right? Like that it's a, it's something to be experienced and that the way you behave in the world, that we can work on that, but that you, it doesn't mean you have to get rid of the pain first. And social messaging, messaging is really powerful. You know, I just look at, the kinds of messages that within my own family about what's okay to feel and what's not okay to feel and that you should be happy and try to feel good. And even one of our top seller selling books, it like millions of copies sold has the title feel good. Right. And so there's that ongoing message out there that that's what life is about. And it sort of, automatically puts us in this funny place where we're 
negatively evaluating and problemizing our own experiences. And I'm hoping that we can shift away from that. Uh, in fact, uh, Stephen Hayes and Stephen Hoffman just put out an edited book called Beyond DSM as an attempt to sort of, you know, get us thinking about other ways to conceptualize human suffering. I really appreciate you bringing up the DSM narrative. I'll be having uh, Dr. Alan Francis on the uh, podcast next week who wrote the book Saving Normal. Uh, he was the chair of DSM-3 and then, sorry, heavily involved in DSM-3 and then the chair of DSM-4. He's been extremely critical of DSM-5. He has a really good take on what is part of the normal human condition versus what should we be saying, hey, this requires you know, significant medical intervention. And it should be the minority of the time. Most of what's coming through the door is just part of the normal business of life, like going through a divorce or being unemployed or having a child that's misbehaving and you're, you know, you need some skills to augment your ability to, uh, to parent. It also gets problematic from the lens of values, right? Where a value worth living often has a significant emotional price of admission in order to live out that value. It's not typically going to be easy. So living a meaningful life almost by definition, perhaps has pain associated with it. Absolutely. Um, you know, the example that I've given, uh, in a number of my workshops, and it's quite personal and meaningful to me, is uh, the death of my mother, where uh, it was an incredibly painful experience where I was right next to her, I mean, literally just inches away from her face as she took her last breath. And I can't think of a more painful moment but I wouldn't trade it for any experience in the world. Like my value around love and being connected to my mother is, you know, uh, uh, far outweighs that pain that I didn't want to experience in that moment, but I was willing to have it and I would have it again and again and again to be there for her in that space. And so, you know, if we think about removal of pain, you know, and I've, we're such a funny nation. I don't know how this is for you guys in Canada, but here, like you get three days off if a family member dies, right? And then you're back to work and you're on it. And it's just like, you should be able to process this quickly and move on. And it's like, that's one of those social messages again, about how quickly we should be able to overcome these things. And, you know, I'm going to feel pain over my mom, not being here for the rest of my life. And I am clear that I am not abnormal for that. You know, that's such a good point. And I'm not, again, I'm not sure what it's like in the United States, but I think what I've seen here in Ottawa, at least with the with the ongoing pandemic, is a lot of people are stopping to appreciate how over leveraged they are, how many distractions that they have ongoing, how much sort of self-medication, quote unquote, there is going on for pain via phones or YouTube. There's just a lot of day-to-day -day distraction. And it really feels like a lot of people are stopping to connect with some of the pain, but also the beauty that is embedded in day-to-day in -day life. We, a lot of our cultural cues direct us quickly away from pain as, as quickly as possible and onto the next distraction. Yeah, no, I mean, no, COVID is like all pandemics have their terrible parts like death and illness, but there's also things that emerge out of pandemics that are interesting and maybe even healthy. And I think you're pointing to one of those places is where when we slow down, we uh, show up more and we can find a, a space where we're reconnecting to nature or we're interacting with children more and seeing that, oh, I have kids, right? So you're not just working all the time and um, sort of re reconnecting to some of those things that feel important in ways that wouldn't have been offered if the pandemic hadn't been here. Um, I'm not saying it's good, right? I prefer that we didn't have a pandemic to get us into this place. But my hope is, and as, as the pandemic begins to wind down and we get a vaccine for it, that people won't ramp up again and get back into that go, 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 go space where they actually miss the moment and miss the opportunities to create meaning and um, their value, live their values in their life. So I thought we could uh, migrate over to talking about implementation of ACT across a few different uh, contexts that you've written about extensively. One of them is ACT as process. Another could be perhaps ACT as trauma. And I know you've also recently co-authored a book around ACT for, uh, for moral injury. 
Was there, was there one of those that you would perhaps like to start with in terms of speaking a little bit to the implementation of ACT within a specific context? Sure. I think one of the uh, things that's emerging out of the dissemination of acceptance and commitment therapy, which you're right, like it's been growing. There's countries all over the world that are picking up ACT and learning ACT. Uh, so there's a diffusion of the innovation, which is fantastic, right? We want that to happen. But there can also be a dilution. And so as these kind of innovations spread, they tend to become more diluted um, from the, you know, it's like um, if, if you think of the um, telephone game where, you know, you tell whisper in somebody's ear a secret and then they have to pass it on to the next person and pass it on to the next person. And what you discover inside of that is that by the time it's been passed over six, seven times, that the message is different. Now, we have written material to counteract that, which I think is really helpful. But sometimes what can happen is that people read a book and then see a technique in there that they like, and they begin to focus on the technique as the intervention instead of an intervention that uses techniques. And they oversimplify it and, and sort of think that they're doing act if they've said a metaphor or done an exercise. Now, those things are really important, but they're tucked inside of a larger, um, I think, four levels of process, actually, because each of the six core elements of act are processes themselves. Like, it's diffusing a verb, an ongoing process. You're, it's watching and observing your thinking. And it's not something you don't diffuse and you're done. It's accepting as an ongoing process. I'm opening to the ongoing flow of my emotional experience as I move forward forever. Not like I do it and I'm done. So we want to dis distinguish between the outcome the techniques that uh, you use to support an outcome, which might be, I'm living well, I'm doing my values, I'm stepping forward. Outcome, essentially, uh, in this sense, then is process, like you want people to engage in process continually. Uh, and then there's, so there's the individual processes themselves, but they're tucked inside of uh, an interpersonal process, the relationship between you and me uh, as a client and therapist. What is my intrapersonal process in the therapy room? What's, what is the client eliciting in me? Like, it's not just that we shape our clients in therapy. They shape us too. And sometimes we have to cue in to what our own experience is in the therapy room. And are we open and willing? And what's happening for us in the, in the moment of therapy? And then ultimately, what is the um, overgoing, uh, uh, ongoing process across time? How is this relationship evolving? And what are the changes that are occurring across time as the, as the individual participates in the therapy? And so you can think of it in a couple of ways, like what is the mechanism that's keeping this person stuck? Is it avoidance? And what processes from ACT do I need to use to tackle avoidance? If you're looking at that as the problematic pathological process that's happening for the individual, that's tucked inside of the relationship, tucked inside of an ongoing and developing uh, process. And so um, I think that sort of the key thing for me, and you can see this happening with some of the material that's been written, The Heart of Act is about this. Uh, uh, Steve and Stephen Hoffman wrote about process-based psychotherapy. And so you're hearing more and more people come back to that connection. And I think in kind of a, if I think about it sociologically as a reaction to the, the dilution of the intervention. You know, let, let's come back to what it is that we're really doing here and not just think about this as a technique that I can pull into my psychotherapy. Not that you can't. And of course, I'm using techniques and exercises all the time when I'm doing psychotherapy, but it's inside of a process-based approach, not just, um, oh, I've said that exercise, so I'm doing ACT. What would the ACT lens be on the, ver on the specific interpretation of what is going on between the two individuals? Or how, how would ACT speak to that or help to frame that up? 
Well, you know, the act is based in behavioral principles. And so we're thinking about how a behavior functions. And so if I were looking at an interaction between you and I, I would want to know is how is this behavior functioning between us? So for instance, if you're a client and I um, uh, ask you, you know, how is the relationship between you and your mom or something like that? Mm -hmm. And you say, Oh, um, you kind of look like my mom, you know, let's talk about some other thing. You know, what's going on there? What is the function of that behavior? Was it a, was it avoidance? And what what did it have to do with me? I mean, these are complicated things, but in that moment, I'm going to either wonder about it out loud or I'm going to hold on to it and wonder if it's a pattern of avoidance across time and what am I evoking in the client by looking like his mom right and so uh, I want to look at the function of behavior as it unfolds between us Uh, so that's where that's the sort of I'd say difference between what is the content content's important like what are you telling me is important but as an act therapist, I'm going to be far more interested in terms of an intervention is the function of the behavior. I want to alter the function so that your, your functioning changes, you're living well. For the therapist who's monitoring their own internal experience through that same lens, would you, want to, would you be suggesting that they be scanning for things like willingness or self-compassion? What are the kind of narratives that a clinician should be walking themselves through as they are attuned to their reaction to the session? Absolutely. Like, I want to pay attention to what is being elicited emotionally in me as well. Uh, I'm not a blank slate over there. Like, the client is saying things and I'm going to have emotional reactions to them. And I want to be open to having them, but I also want to be aware of their, my relationship with them and their function as well. Does it keep happening? And is it relevant to bring into the therapy that's in the service of the client? So I might bring up an emotional reaction that I'm having, but if I do that in the session, I want it to serve what the client's desires and goals and wishes are. I don't want to just talk about my emotional reaction to be talking about my emotional reaction, right? It it needs to have a purpose in the room. And so I might in the moment to choose to say something like I'm feeling anxious as we explore what you're talking about here. Do you notice that? Or I might watch it across time and say, Oh, you know, this really feels like something that is mine and isn't about the client. I'm not going to put it in the room because it's not going to serve the client. And so as a clinician using act, I absolutely need to be aware and open and values consistent in the therapy room as well. So I would say in order to do act well, you have to be doing it with yourself and practicing it in some way with yourself. Because if you're invested in control of your own emotional experience, but you're trying to tell others to let go, one that sort of has some hypocrisy in there, right? Like it's a kind of a funny thing to do. Um, but uh, it also, you can see it. Like when you watch it, you can see it unfolding in the room in a very stilted and not natural. There's no flow. It's, the therapy looks funny and unusual. And usually the, the therapist seems, is like in a one-up position, right? Where they're um, seeing themselves as the, arbiter the the ones who know and the clients don't and from an act perspective like we're in the same human suit we suffer and have our own measure of pain just as our clients do and so we want to stay at that level of equity and quality between the two how aware would the client typically be in this kind of approach that they are uh, steeped in an act permeated process? Like, is it something that is said up front and right at the beginning? Is there a lot of psychoeducation done around, hey, this is how the process works both for me and for you. And you'll, you'll probably pick up on this and that. How much is that made explicit or is it more implicit as the process unfolds? Mm, well, this is a, it's a depends uh, question. Uh, it depends um, depend uh, in the sense is like who's sitting in front of you. So if I have a client who, for instance, is maybe a little bit more um, 
concrete in the way they understand the world, the way they think, I might do a little bit more educating about the process. Just depending on, you know, who's sitting on, in front of me and how they're understanding and connecting to the material that's in the room. Uh, but if, the, if it's, a, it's of a client who uh, is able to think abstractly and be with uh, uh, sort of a psychological understanding, and there's a full range of clients that we see, right? And they're all, but still, we're all in the same pain soup. Um, then, I'm, then I may not uh, spend time describing those processes or telling them what they are or announcing them in some way. But instead, bringing them in naturally. I think some of the key message that I'm going to give, though, is what if the work in here is contained in the therapy's name? We're going to accept what's there to be accepted, what's going on inside your skin, and commit to uh, creating meaning through your behavioral activities. So I might get something like that level of explanation in the room. But then I'm going to let those processes unfold naturally and uh, uh, use them in such a way that they're addressing the, what's going on for the client instead of me explaining them. I do know that some therapists actually like to present the model and say, this is what we're going to be working on and, uh, uh, you know, show uh, pieces of paper about the hexaflex and that kind of thing. And I, I guess, like, what is the comfort of the clinician in how their skill and how they're working as part of that process as well? I wouldn't say this, that the way that there's that that would be doing it wrong. It's just a matter of your what your style, um, how you how well you can integrate these processes, your expertise level and who's sitting in front of you. So there's a lot of variables that might um, be brought to bear in terms of whether you explain or not. How quote unquote all in do you feel like a therapist needs to go to implement act as process? Can you be act as process with one client and then you turn around the next session and you have a very different way of relating to the client? Is it, is it like a diet versus a lifestyle? Especially as I'm thinking like a junior clinician that's forming their identity as a clinician. How could they think through that? I think it takes us back a little bit to our philosophical understandings of how human beings work. Um, I think it can be challenging to mix our uh, human beings work this way metaphors. So I think for, and I often will ask this of folks that I'm training, like, how do you think human beings work? Are they like a machine? And if they're like a machine, then your approach is going to be mechanical, right? You're going to fix the machine. Or are they an organism in a context? And uh, that you want to understand the con how that organism is functioning in the context. So what is the context of their experience? And how might you change the context so the organism is functioning differently? So there's a, it's a funny thing, like when I, when I think about, you know, if you're new to this intervention, what is the thing to do? How do you start? I would first, like, really look at your assumptions about human beings and how you think they're working so that you can have a consistent and coherent approach to what you're doing in psychotherapy. Uh, this doesn't um, mean that you wouldn't be more technically oriented when you start to implement the therapy. Like you might follow a protocol and learn the uh, metaphors and techniques, but then my hope is you wouldn't stop at that, that you would then push beyond the protocol and really start to see how you can fluidly use these processes in session. So um, start there, but don't stop there, I guess is uh, the, the way I would respond to that question. It's a complicated, like we, we could spend, you know, a couple of hours on what are the philosophy of science and how do you think about human beings, which is a big topic. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a necessary topic in some ways, if you want to be able to come in and 
uh, uh, treat your clients with a consistent and coherent fashion. No, I, I completely agree. I think to be a, an effective psychologist, you have to have a philosophy of mind, a philosophy of of how humans work, and not only implemented in your office, but you know, preferably also imp- implemented in your own life as well. Right. I, I often find myself turning to the very techniques that I use with my clients in my own life. And it's a great chance to road test them, like what works, what's difficult, how difficult is it to implement change around a, a particular health habit or whatever you're trying to do? I, I absolutely agree. Is that, you know, um, I, in a way, it is a lifestyle. Uh, like, how am I relating to myself? And how does that relating to myself? get brought into the therapy room in whatever way uh, 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 we're interacting with the client given their particular struggle. And that there's sort of this piece that like, like when I think about human beings, I think of them as to start fundamentally whole. Like you're an experiencing being, you're an aware experiencing being. And, you know, like, Little babies, you know, about four or five, six months old, they're not thinking I'm broken and I'm bad. And, you know, they're not like trying to figure out how to respond to the world that's um, coming in the future, right? They're not sort of stuck in those places. And that is not a broken being. It's like, it isn't until we get language that we start to label ourselves that way. And so if I can sort of take us back to that being that grew up, didn't become broken because they got language, they're languaging that they're broken. Does that make sense, that distinction? Yes. And so they're whole, fundamentally whole to start with and capable of change. And I hold that position steadfast in psychotherapy. So you're whole and capable. And then I'm going to bring the intervention in from that perspective because uh, if I if they're not capable of making the change then what are we doing in therapy well to that point I wonder if we could land on willingness for a moment I'd be so curious to get your take around willingness and how you work around stuck points with respect to willingness because it's often the case that clients will you know very readily understand what needs to happen they, they might even know how to make it happen but they may be unwilling to engage in the change. And of course, if there's no change, then the workability of their life doesn't really change in any material fashion and the problem continues. How do you address willingness and what are the stuck points that you typically find within it? Usually it's uh, the stuck point is that their mind is telling them something about what they're going to experience, right? So we're invi- willingness is a stance, it's a choice. Um, it's a it's a position that you take with respect to your own experiencing. You don't have to feel willing. You don't have to want to be willing. So I'll share that with clients that this is I choose openness to my experience as a stance. And um, I want to look at the cost of not being willing. Uh, like, where does it shrink your life? Where does it hold you back? When you get focused in on, I don't want to feel this, I don't want to have this experience, where does it sort of dictate how you live? And often the dictator is the mind, right? If I feel this, I will be destroyed. I will not be able to function. I'll um, fall to pieces. You know, like minds are making all these comments on the experience. But when when you turn to what actually happens for people, that's not what's going on, but they've lost contact with it because they're living in their heads instead of experiencing their experiences. Uh, the example that I use here is, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a quick and easy one around. Uh, I'll ask my client if they've ever died from embarrassment. And inevitably they say, oh, yes, I've definitely died from embarrassment, which I think, okay, let's look at that. You're talking to me right now. You look alive, right? Like, am I, am I misreading something? And, you know, they'll kind of laugh and be like, well, I didn't die. But then I'll point to, okay, what's what happened in embarrassment? What was the experiential 
quality of embarrassment. And they'll have things like their heart rate went up and they turned red or they got sweaty or, you know, something like that. And then I'll tease like, okay, and then you died. You, your heart rate went up and you got sweaty and then you died. We can laugh about it. Um, and I'm like, let's draw this out to other experiences and what your mind says about it versus what actually happens in your experience. And you can start, start to draw that distinction between those two different processes that human beings engage in, mind versus experience, verbal knowledge versus experiential knowledge. And um, I, that in that place, we can assist with willingness. Like, what if your mind isn't accurate here? Then you don't have to fix it. You don't have to tell your mind to do something different. Just notice that it's saying something here that may not be true at here. And I'm, I'm tapping my uh, my uh, chest where my heart is, right? Like the, that's a different kind of, uh, those two kinds of knowledge are different. And I want to help clients sort of inch up to that place and then look at what the cost of not being willing is. And sometimes those costs are not big enough for clients to want to make a change. You know, is there a rough percentage of clients that you come across where they ultimately end up being or express an unwillingness to uh, experience that which needs to be experienced? And at that point, if you end the therapy, is that a therapist error or are there other things to do? Being, because I mean, I think I always get wrapped around the axle with this where if a client is essentially indicating after giving it the old college try that they're unwilling to experience the sensation or thought or feeling, it's pretty clear we're not going to be able to get too, too much further in our work. I wonder at that point about doing more harm than good and saying in a very empathic, compassionate way, it's like, hey, I would not want you to think that this treatment doesn't work when I know that it does. It just may not be the right time for you to take this on in your life and no harm, no foul, no judgment. Give me a call when you're, you know, at point when you want to, when you're willing to experience X, Y, or Z. When you compare the non-willingness to the cost, a lot of a lot of clients are like, oh, you know, the cost is too great. I've I've got to work this out somehow, right? And um, so I would say the majority, when you start looking at the costs, you know, how small their lives have become, let's say, because they're anxious or they're in bed all the time because they're feeling depressed, the costs have gotten too big. So percentage-wise, I'd say the majority, you know. Uh, this is just a stab in the dark, but 60 to 70% or so, maybe more, uh, they want something to be different. I mean, they're in the room because they're suffering. But I definitely have come across clients who just have, I, I'm not willing. I do not want to feel this. Um, I can give an example of a client who um, had an embolism uh, to the chest and was in the hospital for a long period of time, about three months as they were resolving the issue, almost died, right? That's a pretty scary thing. And he became quite anxious about the uh, whole process afterwards. And every time he had a little ping in his chest, like a little sensation, he was back at the hospital. Makes sense, right? But they kept telling him, no, that's not what's happening. You're okay. He just really got tuned in. And I shared with him, like, there's a high cost here, financial cost. His medical bills were just skyrocketing. And he was, every little moment was uh, captured by what's going on inside my chest. And I said, you know, maybe it's time to just be willing to feel those things without responding to them. The cost is getting high. Of course, there was more going on. And he just ultimately said, I'm not willing. I do not want to feel these things. And um, we ended the therapy because I didn't know what angle I was going to take if he wasn't going to try to show up to these. And I've also told clients that there's all kinds of ways to live a life. Like, I, I want things for them. I want well-being. I want their meaning and their creations and fulfillment to come to fruition and, you know, continue to expand. But there are all kinds of ways to live a life. And one way to live it is smaller, more contained, more safe, more, you know, managing your emotional experience instead of your behavioral experience. And I'm not going to sit back in judgment of that. And so if that's 
like I truly hold that choice is part of what's happening here. And, and I, I want to not insist that you choose something else. This is up to you. And then some clients will just a small percentage will decide to go. And then a majority of them will wrestle with that and wrestle with it. And then ultimately say, I don't, this is not the life I want to live. Robin, I was hoping we could sneak in maybe just a little bit about the ACT lens on moral injury. I do a lot of trauma work. Moral injury is something that comes up all the time. I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit from the ACT frame. Well, uh, first I'll say that moral injury is when we engage in a behavior that violates our own values and we feel pain as a result of that guilt, shame, anxiety, in reaction to violating our own values in a significant way. And most of the time, it, uh, moral injuries occur under conditions of trauma, right? So something terrible is happening. Like a good example might be, let's say you're texting, you text and you get in a car accident because you're texting and somebody's life is lost. Like, you can see how that might create a real painful place for you. You're behaving in ways that aren't consistent with what you care about. And people can begin to suffer under those kinds of things in significant ways. We see it in uh, veterans of war who doing war, um, maybe killed an innocent child or um, participated in activities that they know uh, were against the Geneva Convention or something like that. And under other circumstances, they wouldn't ever do these kinds of things. And they carry these burdens home and feel a lot of shame and guilt and then withdraw from the world uh, and get entangled inside of thoughts like, I'm evil, I'm bad. And uh, that kind of pain is what I would say a moral pain. The injury in the way we're defining it from an act perspective is you the relationship that you have to that pain. You then begin to suffer in ways where you're not living your values more broadly. And you're, you cut yourself off and you might do things like stay away from your children because they remind you of the child that you shot during war. And then your children begin to suffer because they don't have the relationship. So you can just see the function of that behavior causing more difficulties. And so from an ACT perspective, what we're wanting to do is normalize the guilt and shame that you would feel. Like, imagine if you're harming somebody or you texted or you've shot somebody that you didn't intend to shoot in war and you didn't feel guilt and shame. Like that was completely absent. Like, what kind of world would we live in under those circumstances? So we want to let people know that that kind of response is, tells you that you're human, tells you that, you know, you have morals and uh, values. And now we just need to do the work of getting you back in line with those things behaviorally, opening up to the experiences and showing up for your kids, for instance. And so the, the work uh, in moral injury can be really powerful in helping people like recognize that guilt and shame is not their enemy and that they can re-engage and build, rebuild their lives in ways that are powerful and meaningful and are back in line with whatever it was that was violated initially. You can see why willingness would be so important in that context, right? When that pain starts to well up through conversation, the person has to be so courageous uh, to, to be willing to experience that pain full on and to not try and, and push it away. Does the ACT approach in this particular context have anything to say or, or a view on emotional expression? Someone fully breaking down, crying five, ten minutes, you know, really experiencing all, all of that pain. Yeah, no, I mean, if we're, if we're going to approach uh, pain from a compassionate and open place, like, it's all welcome. Now, the thing that you want to watch for is, are they getting into it in such a way that they're actually beginning to avoid? Because really super intense emotional reactions might be an avoidance move, right? Like you start to feel the pain and then you get scared of your pain and your emotion like shoots up and gets higher and higher. And before you know it, you're rocking or something like that. Like that's probably avoidance again. But just the, the uh, expression of tears and 
and maybe even sobbing, you know, and crying about what happened. That makes sense. Like, what a human thing to do, given what's happened. No, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I couldn't agree more with your statement. Those are extremely powerful moments. And I believe it's helpful to have your act hat on as a therapist in those moments too, right? Like, like if you're afraid to take clients to that place when you know you're just on the precipice because of your own discomfort, that's something to really check in on because uh, it could be doing a real disservice to the client and when they, they really need that release in that moment. Yeah, no, you're bringing us right back to the importance of the clinician's willingness uh, to use this process. Because if you are afraid of your client's emotion, you might be giving signals. It could be body language signals, or you you know you might start looking away, or changing the subject, or speaking more quickly, or all kinds of ways that you might interrupt the emotional processing that is such an important part of uh, recovering from moral injury. Well, Dr. Walzer, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Uh, I feel like we really just scratched the, the surface. Hopefully, you can come back at some point in the future. We can spend a little bit more time uh, digging down on that. But for the moment, I really appreciate you uh, stopping by today. Uh, thank you for having me. I would love to come back. It was a, a fun conversation, and um, I hope it was useful for your audience members. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And if people are looking for you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, I have a website, which, by the way, is no fancy deal, tlconsultationservices.com. And you can contact me uh, through my website. There's an email there uh, if people are interested or want to know more. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.